Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture comes from Mark 4, verses 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep in the cush- on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he woke and rebuked the wind and said to the wind, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let's pray together. Jesus, we want to see you for all that you are. And we confess, Lord, that we have made you into our image, into our likeness according to our preferences. And we say we are sorry Would you speak to us by your word? And would you give us the gift of truly hearing? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. My name is Jake. I'm part of the team. I want to ask this morning to begin, when was the last time, metaphorically speaking, you found yourself in a, a verse 37 situation? And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. I've told this story here before, but, but I can't read verse 37 without thinking of the birth of, of Maisie and I, my wife and I's first son. So as newborn parents, we, we go to the hospital and we're excited, right? As the dad, I'm full of fear and trepidation and then contractions start and I'm like immobilized, right? This is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed before in my life. Other dads can attest to this. It is terrifying. And you're standing there helplessly. Suddenly the contractions slow and I'm told, I'm given permission, now hear this, I'm given permission by the nurse and my mother-in-law and by my wife to go to sleep, Okay. I didn't, I didn't do it. I asked permission. And they gave it to me. And so I go to sleep. And, and, and I'm soon woken up by these alarm bells. And, and do you know that feeling of being woken up? And you know, like, right away, something is not right. Like, something is, is terribly wrong. And, and the monitor begins to beep. And, and I look over and I see my son's heart rate, and he's in my wife's womb, is beginning to plummet on the screen. 
And all of a sudden, these medical professionals start rushing into the room and surrounding my wife. And I'm standing, I can picture it now, at the foot of the bed, and I'm utterly helpless. Helpless. I can't, I can't do anything. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Do, do you feel that? Have you felt that? This morning, we're continuing our series asking the question, who is Jesus? And, and the question, who is Jesus, is actually made more pointed this morning by saying this, who is Jesus when the boat is filling? Who is Jesus when crisis strikes? Who is Jesus in our most desperate moments? I want us to see three things this morning as we answer this question. One, a great storm. Two, a great calm. Three, a great fear. First, a great storm. Look at verse 35 with me. If you don't have a Bible, we have some at the back. Take it. If you don't have one at all, keep it. It's our gift to you. So Bible's open either on your phone or in front of you. Let's read this together. Verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boats, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat. So the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Since we last saw Jesus last week, a lot has happened since he healed that paralyzed man. This day, as evening comes, has been particularly taxing. It began with an accusation that Jesus was demon-possessed. Good morning. Then his family tried to kidnap him. Good afternoon. And then a tremendous crowd gathered to him at the sea, so big, in fact, that he had to teach from the boat, and a boat. As evening comes, it's been a particularly taxing day. And I find it, maybe you do too, tremendously comforting that, that though we're going to behold this, this grand display of Jesus' power this morning, our text begins with subtle hints, subtle nods to Jesus' very real humanity. Do, do you see that in the text? Jesus is ready, like really ready to leave a crowd. I can relate. There is some urgency in his command to leave the crowd and go across to the other side. It's this urgent command. Jesus is dependent, right? It's his disciples that must get in his boat to row him across the lake as he sleeps. Because Jesus is tired. Soon Jesus is fast asleep. Again, why is this so important? We can be tempted to think that Jesus faced the, the horrors and difficulties and challenges of this life and of this world as something other than a human being. As something other than a person who was fully man. As someone who did not get tired. As someone who did not need to retreat. 
as someone who was not dependent. But there, did you see it? There lies Jesus in the stern of the boat, and with, with eyewitness accuracy, we're told that he is asleep on the cushion. And it's while Jesus is sleeping that this great storm, this great windstorm arose. Now, don't be mistaken. This is not a minor squall. It's not a little bit of a breeze. This word for, for great windstorm also could, could, could mean hurricane. While Jesus was sleeping, a hurricane came about, the kind that the Sea of Galilee was known for. So let's stop. Everything in our story tells us that Jesus knew exactly what he and his disciples were heading into. That Jesus knew what kind of storm awaited them on the open water. And yet it says, he says, let us go anyways. Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus intentionally and purposely bring his disciples and bring you and me into storms, into hurricanes, to the brink of death? I think it's because of this. Because Jesus loves his disciples. And by God's grace, along the path of discipleship, Jesus grows us and changes us and makes us new and sanctifies us, makes us holy, not just through teachings, not just through miracles, not just through being with him, but through storms and challenges, crises. There's this old hymn I was listening to this past week because I am, at my core, a 90-year-old man in a 33-year-old body. And I was listening to this hymn by John Newton called, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. Do you know it? I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. John Newton writes this. I want to read it to you. I want you to hear, hear what Newton says. Hear his theology. Hear how the Lord has changed him in his life. Listen. He writes, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Up until this point, we're like, yes, John, I'm with you, right? I like that prayer. That's a good prayer. I'm tracking John. We'll keep on reading. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But listen, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Like that. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more. With his own hand he seemed intent to aggregate, aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? "'Tis in this way,' the Lord replied, "'I answered prayer for grace and faith. "'These inward trials I employ "'from self and pride to set thee free "'and break thy schemes of earthly joy "'that thou mayst find thine all 
in me. Do you see it, Christ City? Do you believe it, Christ City? Could it be that the Lord is doing something like, like this in your life today? Could it be that the Lord has sent the storm for a purpose? I want to show you something in our text. See, in a bit, in a bit, when Jesus calms the storm, the word that Mark will use for rebuking, he will say Jesus rebuked the storm, right? Good, strong word. It's the word that Mark uses elsewhere in this gospel to describe Jesus casting out demons or exercising demons. It's the same word. Jesus rebuking the storms. And when Jesus says, listen, peace, be still, that word, be still, is literally to, to muzzle someone. And so the picture is this, that the storm, like a rabid dog, is, is coming at the disciples and Jesus muzzles the storm. And he brings it down. He says, be still. Be silent. Stop. See, here's the tension that we live in as Christians. Here's the tension the Bible explains for us. On one hand, we have the storm and, and all storms, all trials, all crises. These storms in this instant that represent the chaotic world, both seen and unseen, these forces opposed to Jesus and opposed to Jesus's kingdom. Do you see that? The storm represents those things. It epitomizes earthly powers and demonic powers opposed to what Jesus is doing in this world. And to be clear, there's no sense, please hear me, there's no sense of Jesus romanticizing or making light of our trials, our pains here. He's not making light of our hardship. See, trials on their own by themselves, in and of themselves, are not good are not to be celebrated. No, Jesus has come to authoritatively bring calm into the chaos. And yet, here's the other side of that tension, Jesus leads his disciples into storms on purpose, for a reason. He uses storms that we might grow. He takes what is broken and evil and fear-inducing paralyzing, and he purposes it for our discipleship. See, notice, and we can't miss this, if it had not been for the storm, the, the grace of the storm, the, the disciples' true unspoken theology might never have been revealed. Because look again at verse 38. It says this. It says, They woke Jesus and said to Jesus, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, to be clear, the disciples are being rude. As one commentator said, James Edwards, he says, this is the kind of thing that desperate and fearful people say. Right? People on the brink. Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? Have you ever spoken like this to God? I have. Jesus, do you not care? Fill in the blank. Jesus, do you not see? Fill in the blank. And Jesus, do you not hear? 
And while on one hand we can sympathize with the disciples, and on one hand we can write off their behavior as normal and to be expected, right? their boat is being swamped, we must not miss that after the crisis has passed, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them what? Verse 40, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus rebukes them for their unfaithfulness. He rebukes them for their fear. And maybe you think that's too harsh. But but consider, consider what the disciples have seen Jesus do up to this point. They've seen Jesus heal many people, right? A leper, a paralyzed man, right? A man with a withered hand. Many people have been healed. A demon-possessed man. He's, he's done some amazing things, right? They've been taught by Jesus, right? They've been protected by Jesus. They've even been welcomed into Jesus' family. All these things have happened, and we're only at Mark 4. All these things have happened. And still they ask, do you not care? When the real question is, does anybody but Jesus care? Can anybody but Jesus do anything in these situations? See, great storms will do this. They will reveal our unspoken beliefs. Not our professed theology that we say in front of other Christians, this is what I believe, this is what I assent to. No, like our deep unspoken theology that actually controls us, that actually reigns over us. Storms will expose that. And in the storm, what we need most, in the great storm, what we need most is someone to both picture great calm for us and someone with the power to create it. This is our second point, a great calm. Did you notice in our passage today, sneakily, there are actually two instances of a great calm. For the first, we go to verse 38. But he was in the stern, this is Jesus, asleep on the cushion. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. In my experience, which is limited, there there are two types of deep, storm-ignoring sleep. Two types of sleep that can block out anything that's happening outside of them. And the first is the depressive sleep. The sleep of the depressive. What Pastor Tim Keller says or sees as his desire to escape reality through sleep, even for a little while. To, to escape reality through sleep, even for a little while. And, and we see this sleep in the Bible in the story of Jonah. Now, maybe you don't know Jonah, but we're going to go through Jonah in the fall, right before Exodus, so you'll get to know Jonah. But in Jonah, we find a prophet not running in obedience towards God, but running away from God in disobedience. And in Jonah's running, he finds himself, like Jesus, in a boat. Like Jesus, Jonah also finds himself in the midst of a great storm. And like Jesus, Jonah is fast asleep. But as Scottish minister Hugh Martin writes, Jonah was sleeping the sleep of sorrow, the sleep of sorrow, this reality escaping, I just want my world to turn off sleep. But Jesus' sleep in Mark 4 is entirely different. Jesus sleeps the sleep of trust, 
of trust. A sleep that does not ignore reality, but entrusts our reality to our Heavenly Father. We see this because the broader thrust of Mark 4, which we've skipped over in our going from story to story in this series, the broader thrust of Mark 4 is all about Jesus and God having sovereign control and reign over the world. See, Jesus has taught using parables up until our text this morning. He has said, listen, the kingdom of God is like a seed growing. We scatter the seed, which is God's word, and the plant just takes off. And the farmer knows not how, but God grows this plant apart from us, without us. God sovereignly controls and and leads his kingdom through adversaries and obstacles. Again, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. This tiny, insignificant, almost imperceptible thing. And though it's small, it will grow into a tree all on its own that is huge and wide and all nations will flock to it. See, Jesus is filled with great calm. Jesus is sleeping the sleep of trust because he knows, he knows even in the storm who's in charge. Who has his hands on the steering wheel of the universe? And so the psalmist writes, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Listen, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Unlike the disciples who questioned Jesus' care towards them, Jesus lays down his head in that boat, knowing that every hair on it is numbered, is cared for. Jesus pictures for us what it is to have this great calm. It's the result of deep, abiding trust that God is in control, that he's sovereign, that he reigns. And so brother and sister in Christ this morning, you who know Jesus, he's in control. Trust him. Last night I was lying in bed and I was struggling to believe that God was in control and my wife, in the way that only she can do, gave me the gentle rebuke. He's in control. Trust Him. But Jesus does not just picture great calm for us. No, in His power, He provides it. Look at verse 39. And Jesus awoke. You know in action movies when like the, 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 like the action hero wakes up and like they're about to like just like get their vengeance on? I kind of imagine this happening now. Like Jesus, he like, he wakes up, right? Not like a transformer. I don't know what I was doing there, but, but he's like, he's like strong and, and powerful, right? He awoke. He's awake. Okay, listen. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was great calm. And he turns and he says to the disciples, why are you still afraid? Have you still no faith? So once more, we're asking the question, who is Jesus? And if you're new or you're visiting or you don't know Jesus, this is a perfect question to ask. Who is Jesus? In the words of his disciples, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
Well, to the disciples standing in that storm, disciples who knew the Scriptures, who knew the Old Testament, there can only be one answer to the question. Psalm 107 reads like this. He, that is the Lord, made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. In Genesis 1, it is God and God alone who brings calm out of the chaotic primordial waters. Jesus is God. And so one scholar expands the question of the disciples like this. Here's the question, kind of extrapolated, expanded. Who is this who in the middle of the storm stands at one and the same with his own and also at the side of God? He's with the disciples and yet he's also God. Who is this in whom God's creative and redeeming power invades the world of chaos and snatches people from its destructive force? Are you beginning to see who Jesus is? Please see who Jesus is. And if you are, if it's beginning to hit home by his spirit, do not be surprised, and this is point three, if the thing you feel now, if the thing that wells up in you now is a great fear. A great fear. Fear, fear may seem like a strange response. But if it seems strange, if fear seems odd, if fear seems questionable, because we don't talk about fear, especially positively these days, then, then just imagine with me these scenarios. Imagine standing with me at the creation of the world and watching God form the continents from nothing. When God speaks, stuff happens. His word is his deed, and you're just watching him speak the world into existence. Imagine watching God hover over the chaotic waters and bring them into submission. Imagine with me. Keep on imagining with me. Imagine watching the Lord speak rain over here and hail over here and saying sunrise over here all in the same moment. Imagine with me beholding, looking at the person in whom all creation holds its existence and its sustenance and its future. And you're seeing all that in a person. Fear may seem strange to us, but when considered, fear is the only appropriate response to what the disciples are beholding in the storm and in the sea. It's the only appropriate response. And our text tells us that the terror the terror that the disciples initially felt towards the storm, that terror now pales in comparison to the terror of who Jesus is. To the power of who Jesus is. To the one who holds the storm in the palm of his hand and says, stop. And it does. It does. So let's talk about fear for a second in our attempts, both personally and corporately in the church and culturally, to make Jesus more palatable to our, our modern ears and eyes, we have, on the whole, made Jesus a lot less fearful, right? We like lowly Jesus and, and gentle Jesus and buddy Jesus. And so we've, we've created this false binary, right? On one hand over here, picture him with me. We have gentle Jesus. On the other hand over here, we have uh, fearful Jesus. And we've told people to choose. 
He said you could either have gentle and kind Jesus or powerful and fearful Jesus. And so what happens is those of you predisposed to mercy and compassion have seen in Jesus yourself. So you're like, oh, I'm over here. I'm over here. And those of you predisposed to things like truth and justice have said, I'm over here with this Jesus. And never the two shall meet. It's been this false binary we've created. It's why it's so important this morning that we see two things. First, that Jesus' gentleness without truth and justice and power is meaningless sentiment. I want to say that again. Jesus being gentle and kind and compassionate is actually meaningless. It's meaningless sentiment, actually, if he's also not truthful and full of justice and full of power. And conversely, listen, Jesus' truth and power and his might without gentleness and compassion and goodness and kindness it is heartless cruelty seen in dictators of the globe around. And it's perhaps because Jesus holds all these things together, right? Gentleness and compassion and truth and justice and power. He holds them together in perfect unity, perhaps because he does that without contradiction that the disciples still persist in confusion, still persist in wondering, who is this Jesus? See, Mark records, verse 41, hold your Bibles open, look at it. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Translation, the disciples can't compute. <clears throat> They're overwhelmed. They don't have categories to think in this way, to behold in Jesus all these attributes, all this power, all, all of who he is. And so they can't compute. See, Jesus on one end has a birthday, he has a hometown, he has a mother, a father, brothers and sisters, a profession. He gets tired and weak. He, he's asleep on the cushion, right? He likes the softness of a cushion like you and me. And yet, Jesus does what only God can do. Fear is not a strange response. It's not a wrong response. It's the only response. Again, Picture that rabid dog, and that rabid dog is about to maul maybe one of your ch children, or, or your niece, or your nephew, or a child that you care about, and all of a sudden, in steps dad, and dad says, stop! And the dog, tail between his legs, whimpers and, and, and calms down and, and lies down. W would you not fear your father? Would you not revere that man? But notice his power is being used towards you in goodness and kindness for you. Now multiply that fear. Multiply what you would be experiencing in that moment exponentially. And this is the bone-shaking fear gripping the disciples. This is what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. And here's what we must see. Don't miss this. In the Bible... And in the Christian story, fear has one primary purpose. The fear of the Lord has one primary purpose. It's this. It is to drive us and draw us to trusting God as our loving Heavenly Father. Fear needs to lead to trust. To trust. And so let's end like this. I want to go back one more time, just very briefly, to the story of Jonah. Spoiler. 
for the fall. In the Jonah story, Jonah, like Jesus, eventually wakes up. And the sailors have exhausted every option to try to appease what clearly is some sort of supernatural storm. And it's only when Jonah offers up himself to the storm, right? That he jumps into the sea, that the storm stops. Miraculously in the story, again, spoiler for the fall, Jonah does not drown, but he's three days in the belly of a great fish before he's spat back out onto the land. See, Jesus, like Jonah, comes as a prophet. Not a reluctant one, but a willing one. And not as a prophet who bears witness to God, but as God, Jesus bears witness to himself and to his own ministry and his own testimony. And like Jonah, Jesus goes down into death itself for three days before coming back out. And as Jesus, in his resurrection, comes out of the tomb, comes out of the metaphorical fish, with Jesus comes the keys to death and the grave. Jesus is victorious over all seen and unseen powers of chaos. So even when storms overwhelm us, even when it seems like storms have won, even if, listen, Christ City, even if death was to overtake us, even if death was to have overtaken my son, we can look to the cross, we can look to the empty tomb, and we can know, we can know, we can know the good fear of God that casts out fear of everything else. We can know that if we're in the boat with Jesus, even if it was to fill with water, even if it was to sink, that our ultimate end is not at the bottom of a lake. The call this morning for all of us, believer or not, however you come, and I don't know how you come this morning, but the call this morning for all of us is to put your faith in Jesus, to allow this moment of fear, of seeing God for who he truly is, move you to trust, move you to faith. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's easy. There's nothing worse than having a guy speak at you or down to you and just say, hey, it's easy. Just put your faith in Jesus. Just just trust him. As, as if I don't know what's happening outside of these doors. I just heard a song this week from artist and musician John Guerra. And he sings, reflecting on this story, he sings this, this verse. He says, why don't the bombs obey you like the storms of Galilee do? That is the question, isn't it? That is our wrestle this morning, isn't it? Why don't the bombs obey you like the storms of Galilee do? Why doesn't my employer obey you? Why doesn't my landlord, why doesn't the weather, fill in the blank? This past week, uh, one of my, one of my theological heroes, Tim Keller, some of you know him, he, he passed away from pancreatic cancer. And during one of the last interviews he gave as he suffered in these final days, he, he said this from his office in New York City to, to someone asking him, how can you endure all this? What, what hope do you have literally on death's doorstep? And he said this, 
He said, if Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, listen, Christ City, if Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, then everything is going to be all right. I wanted to say it again because it's so simple. But if Jesus Christ is actually raised from the dead, then everything is going to be all right. He says, whatever you're worried about, whatever you're afraid of, everything will actually be okay. Remember, this is a man at death's doorstep. If Jesus Christ is actually raised from the dead, then everything will be okay. So we do not know the particulars of why things happen the way they do. But when we look to the crucified Jesus, Jesus the truer and better Jonah, the one who descended to the dead for us, we can rest assured that chaos will not have the final word. When we behold the risen Jesus, we can go confident knowing that when the Apostle John in Revelation 21 speaks of Jesus' eternal kingdom as having a sea no more, it's not because there will be no water skiing in heaven or swimming in heaven, but instead, this phrase is meant to communicate to you and to me and to all those who trust in Christ that what awaits us forever with Jesus is a world where Jesus has authoritatively spoken, peace, be still, not just over a rough patch of water in the Middle East, but over every square inch of all creation. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I long for that day. I long for that day when you will speak your final word over all creation and you will restore and renew all things to yourself even as you are already right now doing. Jesus, I don't know all the various storms happening in this room, the collective storm that we come together to bring, but you do. And thank God, thank Yahweh, thank the Lord that we have in you, Jesus, a God, the God, who can answer our storm with authority, saying, peace, be still. And so we ask that we would move by your Spirit to a place of trust this morning, that we would cry out to you, that you would fill us with faith in the midst of our unfaithfulness, and that you would draw us to yourself, that we would look to you. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.